I confess, sometimes I feel completely alone in this world. I'm glad y'all said that because it says in here, pause for Oz. <laughs> but that gives me plenty of time to masturbate. <laughs> Bedpost Confessions is an Austin, Texas-based live show featuring smart storytelling and anonymous confessing. Stories heard at Bedpost Confessions, as well as sister shows Unspoken and Confess, all explore themes of humor, vulnerability, and emotional justice on varying topics. No matter the topic, the highlight of any Bedpost Productions is the participation of the audience members sharing their own secrets in the form of anonymous confessions, which are read aloud during the show. I was 14 when Jennifer Katz told me there was something fresh about me, something unjaded. She told me I'd make friends pretty easily at this new school, and I hoped that she was right. I wasn't as sure about my brother, though. My brother's just a year younger than me, and he was always at my side at the different schools as we moved around. He was quieter. I was pretty quiet, too. He was quieter than me. He was easygoing with a physical disability that affected his walking and set him apart. My early memories of my brother, my earliest memories of my brother are all painful. I remember things like when he choked on hard candy and he, he stopped breathing and blood came out of his mouth. Or the time I got on the school bus without him when we were living in a different country and I didn't even realize I'd left him behind till we got home and my mom was crying frantically, calling the embassy, trying to find him, and he was seven. I, uh, I remember the times I didn't know how to stick up for him when other boys made fun of the way he walked or the way he ran. I had my own struggles and I felt powerless to protect myself, much less anyone else. Most of the time, I stayed close to him, both of us wide-eyed and frozen. By the time we moved to New York in the early 1980s, we'd both discovered new wave music and we dressed and looked the part. We landed in a suburb of New York City that has two types of people in the public schools, middle-class waspy kids and Italians that were mostly called greasers or hoods back then. My brother and I weren't either of those things and we promptly did not fit in at all, but we were kind of a curiosity. The school did not know what to make of me, and especially did not know what to make of my brother, who was a six-foot-tall kid, spiky hair, motorcycle jacket, but he still had this awkwardness, this weird walk, and the shyness of a kid who hadn't grown into his body yet. Those of us who were alive, and I'm in the 80s, early 80s, I'm sure some of you were, remember that when you had things like mohawks or colored hair, it wasn't the style then, and you would get your ass kicked. You'd definitely get picked on back then. And so it, it was a bold move for my brother, pretty brave considering he wasn't really a tough guy. Mostly my brother at that school was called a faggot in the school halls, that sort of thing. He'd get threatened here and there. And I remember once eating in a diner in New York with my brother while kids were pounding on the diner window, telling him to come out because they wanted to fight him. And I don't remember how we got out of that one. I think we went out the back door or something, but it would weigh on me, and I know that it weighed on my brother too. I met a boy soon after, a cute boy, dark-haired guy. He was cool and funny. His name was Jimmy the Greek, and he charmed me with his New York tough boy style, his Vinnie Barbarino ways. This, this is full of old people references, like, welcome back, Cotter. He was, uh, he was tenacious in pursuing me, very tenacious. I don't really remember falling in love, but I was charmed. And I also, in dating him, or whatever kind of dating you do in high school, I went from not fitting in to being protected by Jimmy the Greek. And then I had this 
friend group, this running crew of other tough guys, I felt accepted and I felt safe. And significantly, my brother became safe too. Jimmy the Greek spread the word that my brother was not to be messed with. And with this protection, my, my brother flourished. And I got to feel like a kid from working class New York, which was pretty cool. It was pretty exotic for an upper middle class girl who had just been living in Boise, Idaho. I was introduced to rides in the Pontiac Firebird, smoking pot on the boardwalk, and eating pizza by the slice. And as I typed that, I realized in the early 80s, pizza by the slice was just an East Coast thing. You couldn't get it all over the place. Jimmy the Greek showed me his affection, very 1980 style. He bought me a gold anklet with our initials carved into a, a heart-shaped charm, which I still have. I, I came upon it recently. I, not because I kept it. It just like ended up in a box, and my parents sold their house, and, and it came back to me with that box. He, uh, he also got me a stolen stereo from my car. He was, uh, he was an alpha dog with connections, and we were welcome everywhere. I visited my first real New York City club in 1983, Danceteria on West 21st Street in New York City, or the city, as we Bridge and Tunnel kids called it. I was only 16 then. I was too young to be in there, but back then they didn't really check IDs, and my friend had given the door guy a blowjob the week before, so we had, like, privileges to get in. I had... I had like a new wave haircut and my thrifted sort of Cindy Lauper-esque outfit and I did my best to blend in with the club kids. I'm sure I was very wide-eyed though. I was very thrilled to be there and I cannot emphasize how much of a thrill and a high point in my life this was. I still remember it. The next day, Jimmy the Greek backhanded me right across my face as we ate Chinese takeout in his Pontiac Firebird. He said he didn't like me hanging out with losers and faggots. He begged me not to tell my dad that he hit me. When I got home, I explained my swollen face away with a lie. Over the next two years, by all appearances, I transformed into a trophy girlfriend for Jimmy the Greek. I never did go back to Danceteria. I stopped wearing my Susie Sue-style makeup. I wore Jimmy's football jacket. I attended his football games. I played solitaire in my room while I waited for him to call. I didn't wear anything flashier than Jordache jeans, which are kind of flashy because they're really tight. And, but he would allow those. No makeup because he didn't want me to look stuck up or sexy to anyone. Jimmy the Greek had created this narrative and, and that had suited him. And, and my role was to be this humble farm girl from Idaho, which is pretty inaccurate. But I did live in Idaho. My transformation wasn't really a red flag to me, though. And in this new environment, there wasn't really anyone to point out the changes in me, except for my parents. And I wasn't listening to, listening to them at all because I was a teenager. And the thing is, I really felt like the same girl on the inside. And while Jimmy the Greek may have been controlling, he was also a lot of fun and he was funny. I kind of didn't notice how much I changed. It just moved along subtly. We graduated from high school in 1986. Jimmy the Greek and I went away to colleges an hour away from one another, and my brother moved across the country and started a new life in Seattle. I really enjoyed being away from Jimmy the Greek. I was out of his reach, just you know, out of his sphere of influence, and I started making friends of my own choosing, probably people he would call losers and faggots, and I started spending the time, my time the way I wanted to. I hadn't predicted how freeing this would be because I hadn't really acknowledged myself how controlling he had been or how much I'd succumbed to his control. Now that high school was over, Jimmy the Greek had also lost his position as an alpha dog football player. He was just another college kid. As his day-to-day -day control over me was diminished, 
and I was obviously thriving and having fun. Jimmy's behavior started to become more tyrannical. He accused me of talking to guys and acting slutty, which basically just meant talking to guys that weren't him or his friends. Now, I started to see it, but I didn't really know how to stop it. And it continued to get worse for the next two years. I tried to calm him down. I tried to break up with him. But everything resulted in the same thing. His desperation grew more out of control, just fueling his anger and his threats. And you know, he lived an hour away. So then when he'd go back, this is way before cell phones, I would just try not to think about it. Once in a cocaine-driven jealous fit, he hitched a ride up to Syracuse, where I was in college, and broke into my apartment, just searching for evidence that I'd been sleeping around. I talked, I talked him off the ledge that time. I don't remember how, but I did. Another morning during a visit, he woke up and said to me, I had a dream last night that you cheated on me and I bashed your head into the sidewalk. And he sounded proud of that dream. Stalking laws, stalking laws were not yet on the books. I'd never heard of stalking. I'd never heard of restraining order. I'd never heard the term domestic violence or relationship violence. The film Fatal Attraction was a blockbuster hit by this time. And I do remember when I saw that film, it scared the hell out of me because Glenn Close's escalating, unpredictable, and obsessive behavior was something that I saw in Jimmy. It was very familiar to me. Even though it probably seemed like a fantastical movie to other people, it, it felt very real. Jimmy the Greek was becoming obsessed with me in a way that finally, finally was feeling pretty fucking dangerous. It never occurred to me to ask anyone for help, though. I didn't even talk to my friends about it. My parents had moved across the country, and I wasn't close to any real adults, although I was technically an adult, but I just I wasn't close to any of my professors. I had no family out there. I was a legal adult, but I was clearly in way over my head. The last time Jimmy the Greek hit me, I was a sophomore in college. On the way home from a concert somewhere down in the city, driving over what I think must have been the Bronx Whitestone Bridge, Jimmy the Greek backhanded me again, spit in my face, and then pushed me out of his moving car. He was angry because I'd been speaking to another guy in the concession line, you know, acting slutty. After that, I really, it wasn't that particular incident that made me start to pull away, but I was just pulling away more and more. And the more he felt it, the more desperate he became. I was also physically repulsed by him. Often I would feel sick after we had sex. I told one time, you know, he came up to visit and I told him that I thought that maybe I was just asexual, that maybe I wasn't a sexual being and that I needed a break from sex. My period of celibacy lasted about 30 minutes. When in anger, he pushed me onto my stomach, forced my legs apart and raped me. I didn't fight back. I took it and I cried as I quietly had my very first orgasm, grateful that he could not see my tears. The term date rape was unknown to me. This was 1988. To this day, I struggle to describe the shame that I felt. It was vis visceral, ugly, consuming. I'm still unable to articulate the heavy energy of confusion, realizing that I finally knew what an orgasm felt like, but I was utterly unable to reconcile this with what was now a growing hatred of Jimmy. I returned to my college apartment, eager to bury this most recent experience. I enjoyed the company of my friends, drank until I blacked out more often than not, and I never spoke of it. I'd been trying to break up with him for my first two years of college. It'd been a dance of trying to put distance between us, physically, emotionally. Sometimes I'd be brave enough to break up with him, and then I'd 
minutes later have to placate him when he threw into a rage over it. I've since learned that women are 70 times more likely to be killed in the two weeks after leaving their relationship than at any other time during the relationship. And this statistic does not surprise me, given my own experience. In the end, during a visit to my parents' home in the Northwest, I divulged to my parents, to my mom, that I didn't feel safe going back. With over 3,000 miles between us and then the support from my mother, I was able to write a, a letter, a goodbye letter, old style on paper with a pen, the letter where I released myself from his clutches and more importantly, I was able to insist that he respect this. I mailed it off and I waited. The ending was undramatic, resulting in a few impassioned phone calls from Jimmy the Greek that my mom intercepted. These were the days before cell phones, so he was pretty easy to avoid. Jimmy the Greek really, Greek really went quietly at the end, and I'm not sure why, but I'm thankful. It's difficult, it's almost impossible for me to talk about this without acknowledging that my own circumstances, my own privilege, ultimately made it possible for me to leave. I didn't have any children yet. I had the means to get across the country, the means to get away, and I had family that would take me in. So as much as when I wrote this, I wanted to find a nice way to wrap this story up, I just can't find that ending. And I know it doesn't work this way for everyone, but for me, speaking up and speaking out to someone else was my way out. And it came out stronger in most ways, but not without lingering fractures. I still shrink from conflict in relationships almost 30 years later. I still have issues with visibility and putting myself out there. But that part of me, that part that someone once called fresh and unjaded, I'm still in touch with that girl, and 30 years later, I'm still able to keep her alive. Thank you. Bedpost Confessions is produced by Julie Gillis, Mia Martina, and Sadie Smythe. Audio production is by Ian Danskin. Confess with us at bedpostconfessions.com. Until next time, we will leave you with a few other confessions from the audience. I confess that I only like to get in the hot tub because the jets make me have orgasms. Yeah, I don't think you're alone. I don't think that's a secret. Breaking news! <laughs> I confess I was coming out of a restroom in a busy public event last Friday, and a hot guy bumped into me and said, Where did you get that shirt? Can I have your phone number? I said, Yes. The rest is very exciting. <laughs> and there's no more. Where the fuck are you? And write it down and go put it over there. I confess, when I worked full-time as a pet sitter, I had sex in every home where I did an overnight stay. Again, kind of like the, the hot tub. Yeah, yeah, we know. I choose very specifically when someone's staying in my house, do I want them to have sex in my bed? Yes, yes, yeah. I do.